Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Bank failures conjure really frightening scenarios for everyone. And so there's been a lot of fretting over the last few days as two significant banks require federal intervention to prevent depositors from losing lots of money. We're going to talk about the failures today, but also about the regulatory climate that may be playing a role in the risks that banks and investors are taking these days. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Michigan School of Psychology and the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us today. Quick question, how many of you listening spent an unusual amount of time this morning checking on the money you have in banks and other investments? If you could see me right now, you'd see my hand raised in the air. It's only been 15 years since this country experienced the largest bank collapse in our history. That was the collapse of Washington Mutual in 2008, and it helped coin the term too big to fail, with the federal government stepping in to prop up failing banks and prevent a financial catastrophe that ultimately did unfold for all of us. After the Great Recession, which was triggered by those bank failures and some other indicators, there were new regulations that were put into place supposedly to prevent anything like that from happening again. But those regulations were also softened by the Trump administration after he was elected in 2016. And so here we are again wondering whether the money that we trust our banks to keep safe for us is actually safe. It started last week on Wednesday when Silvergate Bank, known as a cryptocurrency-focused lender, announced it was winding down operations because of the decline in the digital currency market. And then two days later, on Friday, Silicon Valley Bank, known as a favorite in the tech industry, became the second largest bank to fail in American history. Two days after that, New York-based Signature Bank became the third largest bank to fail. So we have good reason to be nervous. Three banks in less than one week. Since that time, President Biden has promised that all of its customers and these banks are going to be able to get their deposits from the banks as federal government as the federal government steps in again to try to temper concerns in the financial sector. But this turmoil has caused stocks for numerous banks to plummet as onlookers watch to see how these events are going to affect the economy as a whole. And I think it's fair to say lots of people are holding their breath. Is the bank that I use maybe in jeopardy? Who's next? That's where we want to begin the conversation. Why did this happen? What exactly is the federal government doing in response? And how is this different from 2008? Should we all be worried that this will have an impact on our economy more broadly? Certainly, folks in Washington are thinking about that. And could the previous regulations that were put into place after the Great Recession have prevented some of this from happening? A little later, we're going to talk with some finance experts to help unpack the political fallout and how our regulatory scheme fits 
around this issue. But right now, I'm joined by Stacey Crowley. She is a finance reporter for the New York Times, where she has been covering the Silicon Valley Bank collapse in particular. Stacey, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's start here. How justified am I, and I think lots of other people, in the worry that we have right now about our banks? I, I, I have to say, the first app I pushed on my phone this morning uh, was the bank where uh, I, keep, I keep money, and I just <laughs> wanted to make sure it was still there. Am I, am I overreacting? I think that's a common response some people are having. Um, but, you know, potentially, in terms of how much people should worry, certainly the FDIC limit of insuring $250,000 in any bank account remains in place and has been in place this whole time. So anyone who's got less than that really doesn't have to worry. That's right. And for anyone who's carrying more than that, that's one of the things that's interesting that's going on right now is by backstopping these two banks in full – the government has kind of created an expectation that that's what it will do going forward for any other banks that get caught up in this. So that was a move that was both intended to calm investors' worries and seems like it, you know, is a real guarantee for folks going forward, potentially. So I, I want to back up just a little bit and yeah. talk about Silicon Valley Bank, why it failed, and how it happened so quickly. This was a bank that I don't think most people were worried about two weeks ago. What, what happened? It did happen remarkably quickly. And it seems to have been a classic combination of two things, both underlying instability at the bank and that they had a lot of exposure to rising interest rates. They had a lot of assets on their books that were going to lose value as the interest rates went up, combined with a classic bank run. A whole lot of their, their depositors got nervous and they were uniquely susceptible in that their customer base is tech folks. And tech folks tend to move as a herd. So when a couple of venture capitalists sent out warning signals and started telling people they were concerned, it sparked this enormous immediate run on the bank in a way that you might not have seen had that been a bank that specialized in serving some other industry. So it was just a very rapid combination of circumstances that took it down. And what are the kinds of safeguards that are in place or maybe used to be in place uh, that that are supposed to guard against this kind of panic behavior? I mean, I think, uh, you know, one of the common references uh, that that we as Americans have for this is the the movie It's a Wonderful Life, right? And and we see this kind of bank run that that um, that threatens the stability of a of a, a, a bank because people just suddenly say I need I, I need my money today. Um, we've come a long way from that point, and of course we went through the Great Recession not so long ago and said we were going to fix this kind of thing. What? What are what are the things that that are supposed to make this less likely to happen than more likely? Yeah, so certainly it's a wonderful life as everyone's touch point for this. And in the wake of that, that's where we saw the regulations saying, okay, the government's going to backstop up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars for regular depositors. That was really a move aimed at saying, hey, your everyday Main Street consumer is not going to have to worry about that. So that's been a pretty major protection in place for decades. But then in the aftermath of the Great Recession, what we saw was a lot stricter banking regulation around liquidity ratios and around the assets that companies had to carry, that banks had to carry in case of uh, redemption requests like this. So much stricter controls on their ability to leverage themselves hugely and take hugely risky bets. And one of the things that people will be looking at in the coming weeks is to what extent this could have been prevented with Silicon Valley Bank and to what extent, you know, they were complying with all of the rules. So there will definitely be a closer look at do the rules need to be tightened on these smaller banks. They were sitting just below the kind of asset threshold that would have triggered greater scrutiny of them. Mm-hmm. How worried are regulators and folks in Washington about other banks and whether this these two uh, failures might trigger some some other kinds of panic which would uh, result in other banks in other banks failing? I think they were fairly worried, which is what you can see in that very forceful response they came out this weekend. That was a very unusual 
rapidness with which they did it and a very forceful way in which they did it by saying that they were going to fully backstop all depositors. Uh, at Silicon Valley Bank, remember, about 90% of the deposits there were uninsured. So there was a very large concentration of money over that $250,000 threshold. So for the government to come in and say, we're going to make sure that everyone gets made whole, that was definitely a move that was intended to send a very strong message to the market that they didn't want people panicking. They didn't want to spark further bank runs at other banks. Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Stacey Crowley. She is a finance reporter for The New York Times, has been covering the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, which happened uh, last week, right before Signature Bank also failed. Uh, we've seen a pretty rapid federal response to those two failures to try to make sure that depositors with those banks uh, get their money, even if they had more money uh, invested than the $250,000 that uh, the FDIC insures for everyone. Uh, we're talking about what could come next, uh, what, what caused these two bank failures, and whether the regulatory climate for banks is maybe a little too lax right now, uh, which threatens the stability of these kind of uh, institutions. Would love to hear from you, the listeners, uh, as, uh, during the conversation as well. Give us a call and let us know how concerned you are about uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank failing. Uh, also, let us know whether you think the federal government should have stepped in to guarantee these deposits uh, over $250,000. Uh, does that make sense? Does that perhaps uh, create a kind of moral hazard uh, that that encourages uh, risky behavior on the part uh, of banks? Should the government have let these banks fail and let the market react uh, and correct. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We can include you in the conversation that way. Stacy. Uh, before we get listeners into the conversation, I do want to talk about um, the potential moral hazard, I suppose, of, of the, the government intervening here. Uh, does this set uh, a dangerous precedent and how are markets, I guess, reacting uh, to that move and how would they have reacted, I suppose, if the government had just let the banks fail? Would it, would it be worse? <laughs> yeah, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation because I think certainly there's a belief that we saw a real stock market route yesterday in a lot of regional bank stocks. Uh, many plunged. And I think everyone expects that both the impact on the stock market and the impact on banks themselves would have been a whole lot worse on Monday had the government not done this. Um, their move was very much intended to stop depositors from fleeing at other smaller regional banks and seems to have had some reassuring effect. So had they not done this, I think there's every chance we would have seen other bank runs yesterday. That said... They're already immediately drawing criticism for having done this because, yes, it does create the moral hazard of saying that, you know, if you screw up, we will bail you out. So there's definitely going to be a real regulatory conversation going forward about what the government's role here should be and do regulations need to be tightened to reduce the likelihood of this happening again? There, there were some efforts to loosen regulations on banks back in 2017 and 2018, right after President Trump was elected, and uh, they were bipartisan. I mean, there were a lot of Democrats who, who voted for those measures along with uh, Republicans. How much are people focused on those particular uh, relaxations and whether they whether you can draw a direct line, I guess, from from uh, those actions and what we're seeing right now? Yeah, that's one of the questions we'll have more clarity on in coming weeks. The Federal Reserve has said it's doing a review of this and plans to re release the results by May. And this is certainly one of the questions they're going to be looking at. As you said, that was a bipartisan move to do it. Uh, Barney Frank, who was one of the authors of the original Dodd-Frank bill, he supported loosening those regulations. And it's always been an interesting challenge in that small banks are such a bipartisan thing. It's like apple pie in America. You know, both parties love to talk about how much they love their community banks and don't want their community banks, you know, wrapped up in red tape. So there was a real bipartisan desire to loosen what people thought were perhaps overly strict rules then you have something like this happen and you start to have real questions about, okay, would those rules have prevented this or not? So we should have more clarity on that in a few weeks. 
Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here. Let's start today with Frank in Livonia. Frank, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Stephen. Um, you know, I, I follow economics a lot, and, and I, you know, there's an old saying, it's like musical chairs. And, you know, this is one of the times when the, you know, the music has stopped and there's not enough chairs for everybody. And, <laughs> and, you know, somebody, somebody gets that money. You know, there's money that is missing. And somebody made a lot of money. It certainly wasn't me. And, you know, I, I think it's the same thing when, you know, the government does like the, uh, the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, except for fuel and food, which are the things that are most volatile, but they affect us, you know, working people the most. And so, you know, we, we just don't, you know, we're just on the sidelines. We don't get to call the tune. We don't get to run around with chairs or anything. So uh, I, I have a feeling that, uh, you know, this is one of the things that brought Trump to power. People are feeling like they're losing control over their, you know, their uh, assets and whatnot. And, um, you know, it could it could end up in political upheaval. A lot so, more so, Frank, I, I have a quick question for you. How, how do you feel about the response to this? Uh, the federal government coming in and and making everybody whole, all of the depositors whole, whether they had more than $250,000 or, or not. Do, does that reassure you about the things that you were just talking about? Not not at all. I think that $250,000, you know, and again, we're supposed to be, you know, all equally protected, you know, in the Constitution, you know, up to $250,000, you know, I mean, I think that would be great. But, you know, after that, you know, you get into speculation. Hmm. You know, that's what these people are doing. They're, they're doing speculation. That's not investing. Yeah. And, uh, uh, Frank, you know, I, a dangerous place to be. Yeah. Frank, I really appreciate the call uh, and, and the comments. Uh, uh, Stacy, one of the things that, um, that I think has not been discussed a whole lot in the last few days is the role that banks like this are playing and the risks, I guess, that they're that they're taking. They do look different than uh, than banks in 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 history, and there is more potential danger. This idea of banks that also act as uh, you know investment arms and things like that, uh, along with you know just taking people's um, you know money for 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 checking or savings. Uh, can you talk just a little about the concerns about that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that many banks do these days. And that is something that Dodd-Frank really took strong aim at was to say, okay, bank, if you're going to be gambling with a certain percentage of money in your base, you know, we're going to put some really tight rules around how much you're going to be able to do that. And in this case, it's not actually clear if, you know, risky gambles were to blame here or if it was sort of poor risk hedging. Um, this is a bank that has a concentration of customers that are particularly susceptible to rising interest rates. And it was a bank that appears to have put its hedges in place against rising interest rates using instruments that were going to go down when interest rates rose. So it was sort of a backfire on risk mitigation, but it wasn't sort of the kind of thing we saw in the housing crisis where banks were doing these incredibly risky investments, particularly. So it's it's a challenging one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Frank, again, really appreciate the call. Let's go next to Jane in West Bloomfield. Jane, what's on your mind? Hi, um, I actually have a multi-part question comment. So my first my first comment is, I don't think that the people who are depositors were um, were intending to do anything risky, and I don't think they should should be penalized. And I think giving them their money back is fair. Um, I also think that people are failing to see that, the, I mean, from what I've read, the bank is failing. So they're rescuing the depositors, not the bank, and the shareholders of that bank probably will be losing their entire investment. So there are people paying for this, you know, in addition to the normal everyday people and, you know, due to the increased cost of all this that will occur. Um, and then my last question comment was, I also thought I had read that the bank had made uh, had given out bonuses to top employees ahead of time that were rather large. Mm. And I was wondering what, what's going to happen with that, if that is in fact the case. Yeah, great questions, Jane. Uh, appreciate the call. Um, let's, let's talk about uh, both of them, Stacey. The first, shareholders, um, uh, are they protected, are they not, um, or is it only deposits? 
Yeah, that was a very important point. This is a distinction in how the, the government handled this versus previous bank failures. They did. They wiped out the shareholders. They fired all the executives and they protected the depositors. So the people who were investing in this bank, they got wiped out. The investors did lose out here. Um, and to the question about bonuses and uh, stock cash outs and things like that, I think, again, that's something the regulators are going to be taking a very close look at in this sort of autopsy that they promised will be released by, May, by early May. Um, certainly, there's been indications that, yes, that, that happened. And I, I am absolutely certain that the government's going to want to take a very close look at that money trail. And what could they do if they find that there was some improper, you know, um, handing out of, of, of bonuses? Could they, could they reach out and, and get that money back? Or are there yes. other ways they could punish? Clawbacks are absolutely a possibility in, in a case like this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, Stacey Crowley of the New York Times, great to have you here with us uh, on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about bank failures and bank regulation. Robert Hockett, who is a law professor at Cornell Law School, will join us to discuss the regulatory climate and the hazards that exist in it. We also want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining. The failure of three banks in one wink has a lot of us worried about our banks, and in particular about America's regulatory scheme. Specifically, why weren't there regulations in place to stop something like this from happening in the first place? Is our regulatory scheme sturdy enough? What are the things that are affecting our ability to regulate industries like banking? And should we be thinking about going back to an earlier time, not so long ago, in fact, when we did have tighter regulations on banks that were enacted after the Great Recession of the late 2000s? That's where we want to continue the conversation here. And we're joined now by Robert Hockett, a law professor at Cornell Law School who specializes in corporate law and financial regulation. Professor Hockett, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, Stephen, really great, really great to be with you guys. Thank you yes. so much. Great to have you here. So let's start with this. Did deregulation and recent deregulation in particular contribute to this collapse and the federal response? Um, I don't think it's clearly the case, to tell you the truth. And that's it's a somewhat hard thing for me to say, because usually I'm all gung-ho about regulating more, more <laughs> carefully. And I'm usually quite, you know, sort of put out by attempts uh, on the part of banks and their, their sort of clients, in effect, to uh, get out from under the regs. And indeed, I even you know, testified in Congress in 2015 when there was talk about rolling back some of Dodd-Frank and then in 2017 and 18 again on the same sorts of things. Um, all of that being said, however, this is a case where, again, I don't think it's entirely clear uh, that keeping in place the full SIPI regime, uh, which is what we're ultimately talking about here, would have made a whole lot of difference here. The only way that that might have happened would have been if the regulators who would have enhanced, I'm sorry, would have subjected SVP to a so-called regime of so-called enhanced regulatory supervision or mm -hmm. enhanced prudential regulation. Maybe they would have said, you guys have to do a better job of hedging the interest rate risk that your Treasury's portfolio exposes you to. But it's not entirely clear that that would have happened. And the reason is fairly straightforward. I mean, our regulatory regime tends to view Treasury securities as the gold standard when it comes to safe assets, right? They're considered so safe that they get a zero risk weighting under all capital regulatory regimes. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially where the trouble was in SVB's portfolio. Another way to put this is to say that SVB was kind of being exactly what we've wanted since 2008. You might recall that Paul Krugman sort of famously said back in 08, in the midst of all the trauma of that year, that it's time for banks to become boring again. 
And in a certain sense, SVB was that. Its portfolio was almost entirely comprising two particular asset classes. One was industrial loans or business loans to people in the tech sector, uh, which was actually kind of a good thing. And all of those loans appear to have been performing well, right? None of them were sort of tottering or shaky. None of them were going delinquent. Nothing of that kind was happening, which, of course, is a rather dramatic contrast with the case of the assets in the bank portfolios in 2008. And then the other part of the portfolio was the Treasuries and the AAA-rated MBS, which, importantly, are exactly what the Fed has on its own portfolio under the QE regime. So all of this looked perfectly great, right? And indeed, the portfolio was definitely solvent. The only worry at all was the liquidity risk that comes with the exposure to interest rate hikes. And here again, somewhat in defense of SVB, the rate hikes that Powell has engineered over the last year have happened at a more rapid clip than we've seen in 45 years. They've gone up 450 basis points, that is 4.5%, in less than a year. The last time we saw something like that was 45 years ago when Paul Volcker did it, and you might have read but there were lots of bank failures uh, right after Paul Volcker's rate hikes uh, as well. So in some ways, it could have been anticipated, of course, and maybe a regime of enhanced prudential regulation would have required a bit more hedging against that prospect. But even that's not altogether clear. This is a little bit like force majeure yeah. in this particular area. So, so before we go uh, further, I want to stop and, and define a couple terms for, for listeners who are maybe not so familiar with, with banking. Talk a little more about QE and, and of course, liquidity. Yeah, sure. So uh, let's start with liquidity. The, the fundamental thing about liquidity is it's, it has to be distinguished from uh, long-term solvency. So the basic idea is this. Let's say you're a bank. Um, the bank business model is essentially to take in deposits, which are considered short-term loans, not because depositors necessarily only deposit for short terms, but because they are so-called demand deposits, meaning that the depositors can withdraw at any point. So in that sense, it's a short-term loan to the bank by the depositors. And then the banks invest the proceeds in longer-term investments or longer-term financial uh, uh, investments of one kind or another, assets of one kind or another. And of course, the difference between those two things is where the bank profits come from, right? Because you can charge more interest when you're lending in the long term, and then you pay less interest when you're borrowing in the short term. That's just what all banks do. Now, there are two ways in which the bank can get into trouble, right? The one would be if the assets that it purchased with the proceeds of the deposits were themselves problematic. For example, if they were subprime mortgage-backed securities in the lead-up to 2008, or if they were credit default swaps or other kinds of sort of touchy uh, investments, then there's a danger that the portfolio itself could just lose value as loans default or as assets crash or what have you. That's solvency risk. Liquidity risk is a little bit different, and here's what it's based on. Because the depositors' deposits are short-term in the sense that they can be pulled out at any time, and because the assets in the asset portfolio are longer-term, meaning that you're stuck with them for the long-term unless you sell them at a discount, there's always the possibility that too many people will withdraw their money at the same time and the bank won't be able to sort of pay out to them on that basis without liquidating some of its assets. And that's liquidity risk. Um, that's, of course, where a bank run is. So the whole thing only works if you don't have to worry about too many people taking all of their money out at the same time. Right. That in turn, is why we have deposit insurance, right? Deposit insurance is supposed to make everybody be able to be confident that their assets will, I mean, that, I'm sorry, that the deposits will be there no matter what, so that you don't get a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy-style run on the banks ever, of the kind that happened routinely before the advent of federal deposit insurance in 1933. In fact, what happened to SVB was that it did indeed suffer a run of the classic pre-1933 variety. And the reason for that was because its depositors had deposits in excess of the insurance limit that FDIC imposes, which mm -hmm. is merely a quarter of a million dollars per account. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. It was one of the first things that jumped out at me. I mean, and uh -huh. look, I'm I'm not a I'm not a 
business and I'm not a, a wealthy American. So uh, some of these numbers are, are beyond what I'm, I'm dealing with. But I do know enough about banking to know that if you have more than $250,000 in cash, a bank is not the place you're supposed to be keeping it. And, and yet you had, in this case, not just consumers, you know, regular, regular people doing this. These were businesses that, uh, that had that kind of money there. What, what explains that? And why is that risk um, even present in, in, the, in the market today? Yeah, that's such a great question. And indeed, it gets to the reason that I've actually proposed new legislation this week, essentially to lift the cap on FDI coverage of deposits. So here's the basic story. When FDI was first put in place, that is federal deposit insurance was first put in place, most of the people we were worrying about were, you know, mom and pops, right? Just people like you and I who had relatively small bank accounts. I assume that we both still have bank accounts that are valued at rather less than a quarter of a million dollars. <laughs> right. And so the idea, right, was to protect those folks and to give them, you know, the confidence that comes with deposit insurance and thereby prevent runs. But a few things have sort of changed uh, in the meanwhile. And some of these things um, connect up with the great national project of reindustrialization that we've embarked on over the last last year or so. So basically, of course, the tech firms in Silicon Valley have very large operating budgets on a day-to-day basis, and they have very large payrolls, right? You're having to pay your employees on a regular basis. You're having to pay for various inputs and materials and things that go into the production process uh, on the one hand. Uh, And then, of course, um, you're uh, having to sort of make use of deposit accounts Uh, of your own in order to handle those on the other hand, right? In other words, your operating budget requires that you have a fairly large transaction account if you're a business. Now, that in turn means that a mere quarter million dollar account is just chump change for these particular businesses. It would be a huge account for you or me, but it's nothing uh, compared to the daily expenses of a large firm. So that means the large firm has only, you know, two or three alternatives. It can either maintain a bank account out of which it makes these payments and then risk not having the account insured because the account's larger than a quarter million, or it can invest in other liquid financial instruments in the so-called shadow banking market. For example, money market mutual funds, uh, derivatives markets, the so-called repo markets, all of these things that turned out to be quite unstable in the lead up to 2008. I think we should probably be happy, right, that the businesses in Silicon Valley, instead of putting their money in the shadow banking sector, like in the repo markets or in the commercial paper markets or what have you, that they were putting them in the bank because that's actually a safer place in general to keep them. And it basically means that your accounts are less subject to the kinds of risks that we find in the shadow banking markets. So they were, in a sense, doing the right thing or doing exactly what we've wanted them to do since 2008. But the perversity of all of this is that, unfortunately, in the unlikely event that some sort of systemic event happens, namely those rate hikes that we mentioned before, then the bank deposits themselves would now be vulnerable. Right. And for that reason, right, I've suggested and I've uh, you know, drafted legislation basically removing the cap and then, of course, making sure, though, that the deposit insurance fund continues as it is now to be funded by insurance premiums that are paid in by the banks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, give us a call. Let us know what you make of three banks failing in a week here in America. Nightmarish kind of scenarios, I think, uh, are, are running through some folks' minds, reminding us of not so long ago when bank failures were happening pretty regularly and that they caused uh, the, the the Great Recession. Um, let us know what you think of the federal government's intervention here. Let us know what you think of uh, the regulatory environment that banks are operating in and, and what we ought to be doing. Uh, let's go next to Dominic in Detroit. Dominic, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, I just had a question on the Federal Reserve policy, or I guess a comment. Uh, just that it seems to me that the Federal Reserve's policy of raising interest rates directly led to the collapse of SVB. And just in general, the Fed's approach, it seems to be their measurement of success is uh, slowing the economy in a way that really hurts workers uh, more than anyone. 
uh, dropping, you know, real wages, slowing hiring. Um, I, I just was listening to NPR the other day, and they reported, you know, success out of the Fed that uh, hiring had slowed and real wages were dropping. And it just it it felt surreal to listen to that and think that that's a measurement of a healthy economy. And I know the Fed only really has one tool for influencing the economy, but I just wondered um, if your guest has any uh, comment on that and the fact that the Federal Reserve's policy seems to really be aimed at hurting the working class. And really, we don't have the tools to address things like uh, the income inequality and the fact that billionaires doubled their wealth over the course of the pandemic. Yeah, uh, uh, Dominic, really appreciate the call and the question. Uh, Robert, go ahead. Yeah, Dominic, that's uh, profoundly insightful. Um, a very, very important comment. Um, I've been sort of banging the drum for quite a while now on this, and Dominic has it exactly right. Um, essentially, Jay Powell seems to be listening to Larry Summers, which is already in itself bad news, right? I mean, Larry Summers has probably never given a wise bit of advice in his entire life, in my, my humble opinion. Um, and Larry Summers has quite overtly said right, that he thinks that the problem right now is that we have to, his words, not mine, tame labor. He thinks, in other words, that labor has gotten uppity and labor is demanding too much. And so wage and salary rises are themselves fueling the inflation. That is completely absurd. And Larry Summers ought to be smart enough. I don't think he's as smart as people often say he is, but he ought to be smart enough to be able to see this. And the reason is fairly straightforward. Basically, wage and salary increases over the last 40 or 50 years have been much lower than has CPI CPI increases. In other words, inflation is growing at a rate much more rapid than our salary and wages, right? right? In the meantime, profits are growing much more rapidly than CPI inflation itself. Now, you don't have to be some famous statistician. You don't have to be Jacob Bernoulli to understand that when you have a leading indicator on the one hand and a lagging indicator on the other, it is the former that is the cause, Mm -hmm. not the latter that is the cause. And what that means is that we ought to be targeting something other than rates, which are designed, again, to suppress labor. Now, uh, Dominic is also right that the Fed itself does not have the tools to do what needs doing here. In other words, all the Fed has is the rate hike tool. And if you think of that as a hammer, then you can sort of think of the Fed as basically viewing everything as a nail when all it has is a hammer. But in this case, we're not dealing with a nail. And so the Fed should stay its hand. What we have to do is two other things that are not within the Fed's domain. The first is to go after price gouging, to go after excess profit uh, hiking and the like. And there are ways to do that. We could impose, for example, a windfall profits tax. We could also have uh, federal regulators looking into the price gouging behavior uh, of the firms that are doing that. That's to deal with the profiteering and the price gouging. And then in addition, we can do more of one very good thing that we've been doing over the last couple of years. And that is to invest heavily in bringing back American manufacturing, which I'm guessing is probably going to be a popular suggestion in Detroit. Yeah, very popular, um, yes. <laughs> right. yeah. We have to bring back American industry. It used to be preeminent in the world. We have to make it that again and reverse all of the wrong-headed outsourcing and globalizing and financializing that we've been, done, been doing, largely in turn thanks to Larry Summers, who was Bill Clinton's Treasury Secretary, over the last 30 or 40 years. Right, um, And the reason for that, in turn, is because inflation is always a relation. Right? Mm-hmm. It's a relation between money supplies on the one hand and goods and services supplies on the other. And we have had significant supply problems even before the pandemic. But of course, the pandemic basically magnified all of our supply problems. And anybody will tell you that if you've got you know sudden contractions of supply, if you've got underproduction on the one hand with an unchanging or even growing money supply on the other hand, that too is a recipe for inflation. Happily, the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act and various other initiatives that have been taken by Congress and the Biden administration in the last couple of years are beginning to bring back American manufacturing, American production, and this is only the tip of the iceberg. And so yeah, that itself really is trying. the ultimate end of inflation. Yeah. yeah, they're really trying. But in the meantime, until we get all of that production sort of underway again, which will start happening pretty quickly, and in the coming years it'll be really high, I expect, 
But in the meanwhile, we have to look at the price gouging and the profiteering. And the one thing we don't want to be doing is harming workers by raising rates. Yeah, yeah. Just yesterday, in fact, we were talking about the great opportunities that the tight labor market is offering to people who need to move up uh, the economic ladder. And of course, uh, interest rates, uh, interest rate hikes uh, threaten that. Okay, we need to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue to talk with Robert Hockett of the Cornell Law School. We're also going to add another voice to the conversation, Wendy Schiller, who is professor and chair of political science and a professor of International and Public Affairs at Brown University joins us from time to time to talk about these issues. She'll get, her, she'll give us her take on all of this. Uh, we'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number if you want to join. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining. Our guest right now is Robert Hockett. He's a law professor at Cornell Law School who specializes on financial regulations. I also want to add another voice to the conversation. Wendy Schiller is professor and chair of political science at Brown University. Wendy, welcome back to Detroit Today. It's good to be here. So I want to start with you this time, Wendy. Just give me your your thumbnail uh, take on what happened with these three banks, uh, what the fallout is, and what the federal response means uh, in in a political context. Uh, will Democrats uh, pay a price, I suppose, for for doing what they're doing here? Well, I really believe this could be an Achilles heel for the Democratic Party, and it could get worse before it gets better, because the average person in America doesn't get bailed out when they make a horrific mistake at work or a bad decision about a company's finances. They lose their job. Sometimes the company goes out of business, and it's rare that the federal government steps in to help. And this is a very public save. They're trying not to call it a bailout, technically, because Technically, taxpayer dollars aren't going towards it, but it's still um, major tech industries where people have sort of this view of um, lavish workplaces and big bonuses and lots of money and big stock options. Um, and they made a terrible mistake. And the companies that are that are with that bank are getting their money because they have to pay their you know their employees and they have to meet payroll and they they want to keep functioning as businesses. So, you know, that's the one explanation, but most people don't have that security blanket. And the last time the government, the Republicans started the bank bailout, obviously under President George W. Bush and President Obama continued it and they got wiped out in the 2010 House elections and the Republicans took over. So I just think this gives a lot of fuel to Republicans who will point to it as another example of uh, big government intervention, despite the fact that the Trump administration in 2018 reduced the regulations, loosened up the rules. Uh, but you're finding all sorts of stories about, you know, former Congress people who are lo- lobbying for these big banks, you know, and, and medium-sized banks to be, uh, you know, exempt from regulations or to loosen the regulations. Uh, so I just don't, I don't think this goes away for the Democrats. And I mm-hmm. think there's just a lot better explaining that has to be done. So, so if they didn't make everybody whole here, what would they do instead? I mean, not doing that risks, of course, uh, I think a wider economic implication if companies lose you know, so much money that they have to go out of business and lay off workers and, uh, and, and things like that. What, what would you have counseled instead, I guess, of, of this bailout? Well, I mean, I think it was so it was so quick. You know, they didn't have any time to prep anybody 
for what was what they were about to do. And most people don't understand that there's an insurance system in, in which banks pay in and the federal government can use that kind of money. All people saw uh, on Friday were the numbers, right? You know, the billions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and then you saw, don't worry about it. You know, we're going to take care of that. And I just think the messaging was so bad. Um, and yes, you, you obviously can't have a ripple effect where big businesses will pull all their money mm-hmm. uh, from banks. Obviously, that's a big problem. But there were underlying decisions about investments made here. And, you know, the decision by the Democrats and the Republicans, you know, almost 30 years now uh, ago to let banks get involved in investment. Uh, in the way that they are and take risks like the, the way that they do. And even if Dodd-Frank tried to fix it, it didn't fix it completely. You know, that's something we really have to look at. We have to sort of say to ourselves, is that really the model that we want to live under? Uh, because, you know, this is going to happen again and again. And, you know, you know this as well as I do. In politics, if it takes more than 10 seconds to explain, you're in big trouble. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so, so Wendy, let's also talk about deregulation. You referenced the deregulation that took place after President Trump won in 2016. That that issue is really popular. Uh, people like the idea of uh, freer uh, capital markets. They like the idea of less government interference uh, in in business. Here, uh, we have a case where uh, deregulation could face a backlash, I suppose, uh, if people decide that that was part of the, the catalyst here. Uh, politically, how do you handle that? Well, it's a, it's a great point because it's so in the weeds of what government does. Uh, and we've been doing this really since the New Deal. I mean, it's not 100 years, it's like 90 years, right? I mean, of, of trying to figure out a way to allow capitalism to flourish, but also make sure that individuals aren't hurt in the process. And it's a very difficult balance. Um, and so when you think about that, the messaging, though, on it uh, for at least a decade has been that government just misses, you know, misses the mark doesn't get it. You know, obviously the Madoff, you know, disaster where somebody could have that kind of Ponzi scheme for decades, uh, be alerted to it and then, you know, not do anything about it. Uh, And of course, obviously subprime lending that led to the Great Recession. So it's just a message after message that government is failing to regulate even in the simplest way. Even if you want to deregulate, there's still a structure that's supposed to protect people. But the government seems to not be able to even manage that. Uh, And I think it feeds into Republican messaging that the big federal government is not the place you want to look to to keep yourself safe, uh, whether it's in your personal security or your financial security. Yeah. Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, Let's go next to Paul in Royal Oak. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Yeah, Um, go ahead. I wanted to ask several questions, but in light of your next guest, it's it, the, the 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 topic is so complex that you could just go on into each sentence, you know, for an hour or two, mm-hmm. just a <laughs> second to yeah. break it down. But the one thing that I think is a simple message, I just don't understand. Nobody in the media ever uses the phrase a uh, stress test, and I was under the impression that after the two thousand eight thing that banks of a certain size would be stress tests for all possibilities. And I'm curious why we're also surprised. I thought that you can't have a bank with a concentration in a single industry. It's just like insane. Yeah. But- Paul, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but it's a great question. And I do want to get uh, uh, Robert Hockett to be able to, to, to address that. Robert, we, we've only got a couple minutes left, but, but talk about the stress test and whether that's one of the other things that, that failed here. Yeah, so very quickly, first off, um, the, um, the the bank in question here, SBB, would have been subject to a stress testing regime before 2018 because it would have fallen under the ambit of the Dodd-Frank provisions covering SIPIs, so-called systemically important financial institutions. But Congress essentially raised rose, raised the threshold for SIPI designation uh, in 2018, and that's exactly the thing I was referring to before that I testified against uh, before House Financial Services and other uh, congressional committees over those those years. 
So your, your, your caller is exactly right about that. We would have had stress testing had it been otherwise. Uh, on the concentration point, it's a slightly different story. SVP is a California chartered bank rather than a U.S. chartered bank. And we actually allow a bit more industrial uh, uh, concentration on the part of state chartered banks, basically on the theory that as the nation reindustrializes, Sector-specific banks can be very helpful because they know the sort of specialized needs of businesses within those particular spec, uh, sectors. We used to have industrial banks uh, in the old days when we were an industrial country mm-hmm. precisely for that reason. But that does, that sort of industry concentration does raise unique risks, of course, because the risks are correlated uh, across the industry. Uh, and so you have to have special prudential measures to sort of mitigate that risk or to compensate for that risk. And the state of California does not seem to have had anything like that in place. Yeah. The very fact that SVB was almost the only game in town when it came to the tech sector is itself bad news. It raises sort of antitrust type concerns. And the state of California probably would have done better to see to it that there was more than just one game in town when it comes to the, uh, the tech competition. Sure. Uh, Wendy yeah. Schiller, we've only got about a minute left, but I want to get you to, to project out a bit. Uh, what, what, what are the political moves that make sense uh, given given the, the threat here and the fear that people are experiencing? Well, I mean, I think the Biden administration and um, obviously Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are all over this. Uh, Senator Warren from Massachusetts and Senator Sanders from Vermont uh, being the progressive left of the Democratic Party. Uh, but they've got to figure out a messaging and legislation that says we are going to protect you from losing your money uh, but we're not going to bail out uh, companies or banks that make big investment mistakes and send that signal and make sure to thwart what will be a very populist message returning uh, from Donald Trump and possibly Ron DeSantis uh, and other Republicans. So they've got to get they've got to use their agenda setting power from the White House now to show that they're willing to go beyond this step and actually, you know, either undo that loosening of regulations or pass new legislation that really firmly protects taxpayer dollars. Yeah. Okay, uh, Robert Hockett and Wendy Schiller, great to have both of you here on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we sit down with Oakland County Executive Dave Coulter following his State of the County address. Also remember, if you like this show and enjoy listening, you ought to be sharing it with your friends and your relatives and other folks you know. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.